0: Hey everyone, today I'm talking with Dr. Param Baladandapani. She's a part-time practicing radiologist, a real estate investor, and mentor to other physicians looking to get into real estate themselves. She's also a full-time mom to two kiddos. We're going to be discussing her experience in medicine and how as her family grew and life changed, she began to burn out, like many of you guys. Fortunately, she was able to find freedom from the demands of their medical career by investing in real estate. We're going to talk about how she was able to use real estate to become financially independent very quickly and how this allowed her to scale back working to really only about one shift per week now in practice we also discuss some of the things she's doing now to give back and help mentor other physicians that are on their own journeys into investing in real estate so if you've been thinking about investing in real estate yourself or maybe you even have your first property already and aren't sure exactly what's next, I'm sure you're going to find our conversation interesting. So with that, let's jump into the conversation now. Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals, but it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Ren. Let's get started. Barom, thanks for joining me on the podcast today.
1: I'm so excited to be on here, Daniel.
0: Yeah, I know you've had a lot of professional success and a lot lot going on. We were just talking about our summers with kiddos and all the craziness with that as well. So you're a practicing radiologist. You've been doing that, what is it 20 years now?
1: So it's uh, 13 years since I've been out of training and I worked full time for the first 10 years. And then the last three years, I've been a day a week or less in medicine at this point.
0: Gotcha. So yeah, still practicing one day a week as a radiologist and your bigger professional endeavors here lately, you're getting into real estate. And I know you've built your own real estate portfolio, but have also started helping others with real estate and have built several businesses to kind of support all this. And that's pretty cool to see all that. And I imagine that there's a lot of balancing going on. I'm thinking like two kiddos, businesses, practicing medicine, life is a lot to kind of balance and, but from my view, it looks like you're doing a great job with all that stuff. And I'm kind of excited to dig into how you've gotten to where you are today and how you've been able to, I know there's never this perfect balance, right? Or maybe you're this one person that i found yeah, that has totally. perfect <laughs> balance, but I imagined.
1: The, the last person. No, you, you're absolutely right, Daniel. So it wasn't the plan, right? This wasn't the intended direction. I, when I got out of training, I got these amazing jobs as a radiologist. You know, I'm a high, high income earner. It was the definition of success that I'd had for years where you know, I had the million dollar house. I had the 12 weeks vacation and go and everything was going good you know the traditional what you how you anticipate things to be and I realized along the way before you have kids it's, it's very different but as, you know you have the first child and it's still manageable and then you have the second child and you realize you definitely need way more time if you really you want to be intentional about being present for them and that's when I think I started to realize that I had a lack of autonomy, I didn't have absolute control over my time, right? So I definitely wanted to spend more time with the kids. But oftentimes, they were spending the day with the nanny or in daycare. And so it, it was something I was getting used to. And I always say, status quo is okay, if it's not super painful. So it wasn't super painful, it wasn't to the point where a change need to, needed to be made. And so I was just cruising along till there was a rough transition at work where that's when I realized that things couldn't continue the way they were. And that's when I had to pivot. And pivoting for me was about accelerating my real estate journey. Journey, that's when I really understood the impact that that would have. And then when I got to financial freedom, that's when I was able to cut back. So that's a little bit of, a, of the backstory in terms of how it worked out for me.
0: What were some of the reasons, like if we could go all the way back to, I don't know, like right before medical school, I, that's, I guess that's kind of when you make that decision to go into the career or maybe, maybe it was sooner for you, but like what were your main reasons? Maybe two-part question, like at what age did you decide you were going to go into medicine? And then at that point in time, like what were the reasons you decided to do that?
1: Well, so funnily, you know, I'm Indian and my parents knew when I was born that they wanted me to become a physician. So growing up, I just knew that I really early, like at three, I knew I was going to become a physician. So it's always been a part of my identity and looking back, I mean, you know, especially since I've cut back on medicine, a big part of my transition has been really being introspecting. There's nothing else I would rather have done, right? So as as a career, as something that I spent so many years training to be, I just don't see myself doing anything other than medicine. It's just that the medicine was very different from the job that I had was more limiting. Medicine is very fulfilling. I still feel that way about it. I think the aspects of the job was, those were the things that I wanted to see the changing. but medicine per se, radiology, the diagnostic aspect being procedural. I'm a breast imager. All of that was very, very fulfilling and satisfying, uh, but the, the job was very different from how I wanted to practice medicine.
0: Yeah. I have heard that like a zillion times. Unfortunately, this whole idea that most physicians I interact with seem to have gotten into medicine for the right reasons and have this vision of how they would ideally want to take care of patients and do healthcare. But there's this, that vision. And then you look at the actual reality of how they're doing it and it's completely different. And that seems to have, I mean, it seems to be a big part of all this stress that exists with the profession. Cause when you know the right way to do something and you're kind of like forced to to do it a different way that's like incredibly frustrating for some people some people have different tolerances for that for me personally like I have very very low tolerance for that I'm like I got to get out immediately because it's it's extremely frustrating but has that been your experience is that like
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Danielle. So there are a few components to it, right? Burnout is definitely a huge component. And burnout can be because the workload, what you're expected to do, your expectations at work, there's a mismatch over there, right? That's not what you want to do. That's not what you have capacity to do. And those expectations aren't resetting. Burnout could be because, and I've seen this with physician friends who are sometimes commuting four hours a day to get to a job that they like. But then it's taking away so much from quality of work. I remember during the pandemic, you know, right after that rough career transition, you know, where it was a six-month period, I didn't have autonomy. I realized that if I didn't get back into another job, you know, I wasn't financially secure at that point. So you have that all of that transition. But right after that, when I got settled in and I had another job lined up, and I was settling in there, the pandemic happened, and a lot of physicians experienced burnout during the pandemic because suddenly, you know, workload shifted. The, the way we were practicing medicine had to shift and pivot. And, and all physicians listening to this understand it was a time of huge transition I went through that transition and fortunately enough as a radiologist and I think many of us were able to work part-time from home but being at home with the kids being at home and then Mm. suddenly you know shifting in terms of what your workload used to be and what you're expected to read and um, a shift in that um, workload also all of those things actually contributed to burnout for me. I remember there were days where I wanted the next day to be better. So I would stay up late at night after the kids went to bed to catch up on additional cases so that I would ensure that the next day was better. But in the process, I was burning out, right? There's so many reasons why you know, how your job in medicine actually contributes to burnout. And then there are two aspects to that. A lot of that is also your ability to set boundaries and to adapt to the situation. The big part of it, like you said, if you're not the kind of person, and so many of us are in situations where we aren't thriving in medicine, the ability to make a shift, right, that ability, the shift could just be staying there, really defining your boundaries, negotiating better. But if you want to get into a better situation, a lot of physicians are not in a position where they're able to make that shift. And that's where I think financial freedom comes in. That's where whatever you're doing right everything that you mm. talk about financial planning all of that contributes to your ability to make that pivot if you need to
0: yeah we always say using finance or your money as a tool is the key like it's not the money in itself like money doesn't act like having a million dollars or a billion or whatever that does nothing in itself like yes it's how yes. you use it as the question mark as a tool i'm curious about some of the big decisions along the way like maybe before you shift it out like Starting in practice, selecting a practice, selecting a specialty even, like before you were kind of into real estate, maybe, how did finances play into into some of these big career decisions or did they?
1: Uh, to some extent, they did. Um, I wouldn't say finances per se, I would say more lifestyle because I did decide to go into radiology, which is one of the lifestyle subspecialties in medicine. I did decide um, to pick breast imaging, which again, um, is, is a better lifestyle choice because oftentimes mm. you're, you have the ability to say, I don't want to do weekends. I don't want to work overnight. So you do have that ability. I think that was an intentional choice. It's also something that I was really good at and and that helped. But I think looking back, having that time for my family and being able to balance it, like you said, how do you balance it? How are you supposed to balance it if you're one person and you are full-time in multiple things, right? So it's not possible. And so if you don't have that freedom of time, then everything else falls apart. So I think I've been very intentional from the beginning about the choices I made. But even with those choices, I realized that, I wasn't really where I needed to be. And, you know, people ask me all the time, how did you pivot from medicine to real estate? I don't think that's what happened. And I think this is the core of what you speak to also. Daniel, when you're making money, you know, as a physician, as any kind of professional, anyone who's making money, you need to be investing it because if you aren't investing it, then you're constantly trading your time for money, but you want your money to be making money for you. And for me, real estate was just that vehicle. It was just a vehicle I chose to really make my money work harder for me, essentially. That's essentially it. And, And the rest of it was just a passion project project started off as, okay, I want to talk about this because you know this, Daniela, I've listened to your podcast and the topics you pick, right? These are such important topics. A lot of us struggle with this, but there's never a space to talk about it. No one's really at the workplace. You're not talking about it. You you interact with friends. Oftentimes people are very tight-lipped about finances, but all of our struggles are so similar. When I got to the point, I realized that, well, I could have done this 10 years ago if, I, if someone had walked me through this whole process. And so it was just a question of talking to people about, hey, what are you doing with your money? How are you investing it? Because if we're not intentional about it, we're going to land up somewhere where we don't want to be.
0: Do you think financial literacy is a, was a big part of it?
1: So, So I don't think there's ever a focus on financial literacy, right? So right now, listening to your podcast, there are so many people talking about it. I think 2010, when I came out of fellowship, I think it was a different world back there. I I don't think there were so many people talking about all of this. I don't think it was part of our curriculum in school. It's not something we Mm -hmm. talked about as a family, especially if you're a physician. The understanding is that your income in medicine is your financial security, which is completely not true because that job is not in, in your control. And therefore, that income is not in your control and you're trading your time for money, right? If you don't put the time in, you're not getting the money. So financial literacy is important, but there really isn't a focus on it in school, in families, in our circles. And so I had mentors who taught me what they knew, which kind of got me started. So 2014, I got my first rental, I got a couple of rentals along the way, but I didn't really know what I was doing with them entirely, right? Uh, I was somewhat financial literate, and people taught me what they knew, but there was so much more to learn. And as soon as I learned that, I was able to pivot. So financial literacy is absolutely imperative, I mean, for anyone, right? But there aren't really conversations about it. And I would say 15 years ago, the resources weren't there. I think it's easier now if you want to go in and read blogs and understand, but that's where having someone assist you with the planning or maybe I think mentoring and coaching in that space is so helpful because just listening to things here and there, it's kind of hard to have a a systemized roadmap, right? So if you have someone... Mm -hmm can actually look at things holistically and help you build that roadmap. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, I know you're probably experiencing, well, you've experienced it on both ends. You were saying like you had a mentor and I imagine we haven't talked about this yet, but I imagine you've kind of experienced it on the other end of being the mentor or helping someone kind of learn or make a plan or whatever. I've experienced that working with families. It's like the light bulb goes off or it's like connecting financial literacy to like your ability to enjoy time with family or like, you know, there's a lot of different ways this kind of plays out. But like, one thing I have noticed is similarity to a lot of these people like you that have had success here is that there's some component of another person that helped them kind of like get over the hurdle. In other words, it's really difficult or maybe impossible to go at it alone.
1: I think so, Daniel. I mean, I remember one of my colleagues at my first job out of fellowship, he was a third generation real estate investor. And he kind of got me started, he connected me to his team, he told me how to invest in the stock market, he told me what to do with real estate. And I think if he hadn't really guided me, and I, I would teach him breast tomorrow, which was something he was learning uh, on the go, he hadn't actually trained to do it. And so he taught me how to invest in the stock market and real estate. And I, I don't think I'd be here if I hadn't had the perspective shift that uh, I had because of interacting with him, right. And so that's what oftentimes and, and you understand this, right? What we're doing doing is we're just presenting people with multiple different options so they have different perspectives to pick from so and they're more intentional about what matters to them and it's not a one-size-fits-all but really being able to see what your options are is really important and I think having someone who kind of shifted that perspective for me and got me started if I hadn't started if I hadn't seen the impact of that $150,000 property had over six years I would never have taken the step to mm-hmm. really accelerate when I did right and so I think it's really important at having those people at the right time the earlier the better because then you have the company effect of time Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and so you originally started out you had you were doing the real estate while also practicing medicine full-time right
1: so I was. And so the funnily, and I say this uh, all the time, it's like when I didn't have kids and I had all the income and I all the time in the world, and I was in a- academic medicine, I didn't realize the impact of real estate investing, right? So I I bought this, my first rental property, it was putting 500 bucks in my pocket every month. And I thought, well, how is this ever going to get me to 10,000, $10, <laughs> $10, $20,000? Right? So I was like, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. I put it on the back burner and, I, and then I purchased something without leverage. So again, doing things, not really doing them the right way, I would say looking back, but mm-hmm. I, I at least got started.
0: Was your first turnkey like a outsourced, like you had a manager and the whole thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so my mentor would invest out of state with a property manager who'd never laid eyes on his properties. And so that gave me the perspective that I could do that. And I was living in California. I wasn't sure if we were gonna settle down here. So I started investing in Texas, um, right? And I didn't have any barriers around that because I saw him do that successfully. But I would say even then, I didn't realize the impact, but then looking back in 2019, I, like I said, status quo is fine, you know, as long as everything you're, you're sailing, it's okay. But when I had that crash, that's when I looked around and I was like, okay, so what's my stock portfolio looking like? What does real estate look like? And then I saw that with a third of my money in real estate I was getting twice as much in passive income because at that point I was thinking, what about passive income, right? So what if I don't go to work tomorrow? What happens to my family? And that was like the the light bulb moment for me. Like so, six times the passive income. Why is that? And then that's when I learned about the four percent safe withdrawal rate, and I was like, wow, I need to have two and a half million in my retirement accounts if I want to pull out a hundred thousand dollars. But real estate, it was like you know a fraction of that invested in real estate. Even doing what I was doing, which was just buying them, turnkey, keeping them super passive, and having someone manage it, I could get get to that point so much faster. But then along the way, I learned so many other strategies, you know, uh, for high income professionals, we're paying multiple six figures in taxes. There are ways that depending on what you invest in, right, short term rentals, you may be able to some of our members shelter a half a million dollars of income from taxes just by virtue of investing um, in short term rentals. There's so many different ways to do it. That's when I accelerated. But yes, when I was doing that, I was still working full time. Uh, And I had, that was during the pandemic, right? So the kids were home and working full time. uh, I was still able to get to financial freedom within a year. My plan was a three-year plan. I got it within a year just because of getting more literate in terms of, okay, what is this and what can I do and how can I accelerate? So I say I did it. When I was working full- time and I had two kids during the pandemic. I didn't really do it when I had all the time in the world and you know didn't have kids. So a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know when your mindset shifts, that's when you're able to do it, when you see those have those different perspectives, when you have the 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 knowledge in terms of what you can do with it.
0: Mm-hmm. I imagine with all that going on, that was tough to balance. I mean, everybody's busy and there's never any spare yeah. time, but that sounds like a lot.
1: It does. And it's funny because I had a friend and this was a time I was acquiring three properties and I was rehabbing a property without a general contractor. And so she <laughs> calls me and goes, you know, I don't know, maybe you should slow down. And I was like, wait, but it isn't that bad because the three properties I was acquiring, this my systems were down pat where, you know, they, I was acquiring them out of state and it would take me two hours tops from when I tell my agent, I need, I need to acquire something to when the notary comes home and has me sign all the, you know, they actually come home and have me sign all the paperwork, so two hours, property over the, you know, over the course of the acquisition. So it really wasn't as much work. And then the rehab was something I was doing because I wanted to get the tax savings at that point, right. So I wanted to be a little more active because I wanted to, again, it was about my goal, which was to get to the point of financial freedom faster. And I wanted to Mm -hmm. do it when my kids were little, not like 10 years later. And, and so I was hustling a little bit at that point, but even then I was probably spending one to two hours a day on real estate, which isn't a lot considering the fact that if I wasn't doing that, I was probably, Watching two hours of Netflix, and so it was a choice. <laughs> it was like prioritizing what I wanted to do, but I say this, Daniel, and you know, again, it's not one size fits all. So it's it's going to be. I say I think of real estate investors as three different categories, right? When people try to think about it, and they're like, "Well, I don't know if I can do this." You could be what I call the investor or the legacy builder who's doing it slowly, right? Slow and steady, buying two rentals, turnkey. You know, getting a property manager to manage it. Would probably take you 10 years to get to financial freedom. You could do what I did, and I call that the short-term hustler where you're doing midterm rentals or you're doing rehabs and you're hustling for a short two to three year period, but you're getting to financial freedom that much faster. Or you could be what I call the entrepreneur who loves, who thrives in this environment, who really likes setting up spaces and running short-term rentals or, you know, syndicating apartment complexes and being a general partner. And they like that. They like the business of real estate and they want to do it. And so you you could be Anywhere along the spectrum, the entrepreneur obviously gets all the tax breaks, and you know they they accelerate much faster. The short term hustler does it for a while, and then they they just set it, and it just you know that's what my my current rental portfolio. I spend fifteen minutes a month on it, and it's just generating passive income. Or you could be mm-hmm. someone who stays super passive from the beginning, and that's what you're trading, right? It's a trade off between time and returns, essentially, and there's a spectrum, and you get to pick mm-hmm. where you want to be on it.
0: Do you think if medicine had played out exactly how? you'd envisioned on the front end, like if it had been not a messed up healthcare system, or you had been able to practice medicine, how you'd hope, or if there wasn't, and maybe on top of that, if the pandemic hadn't happened, and if all these big things that were kind of like stress points within the traditional track in medicine hadn't happened, do you think that you would have still gone into real estate? Or do you think it could? How would it have played out in your mind? Do you think it would have been different? Or do you think you would have still ended up where you are?
1: So if I knew what I know today, I would still done the real estate on the Side, right? I don't know if I would have uh, started to grow the community and mm-hmm. done all the education part of it. I think that came from a place of pain where I saw that, you know, there was a need for people to talk about it and the need for people to be more physicians to be more financially literate. I think that came from a place of pain. But uh, if I, I mean, knowing what I know today, I would totally have started investing. Like I said, you're you're always investing, right? Even if you're putting your your money under the, on the mattress, that's just your choice in terms of what you want to do with your money, right? Mm-hmm. So you always are placing it somewhere. You're placing it in a CD. You're investing it in traditional retirement account. You're investing in real estate. Real estate is just it's definitely higher risk adjusted returns. So when you know what you're doing, you're significantly lowering your risk, and you're mm-hmm. significantly increasing your return. So there, I don't see a world where I wouldn't be investing in real estate, I probably would not have started the community. I don't think the, the healthcare system is messed up as such. I think what happened is that my needs transitioned. right? When I was single, I could spend uh, 10 hours a day in medicine. And that was perfectly fine five days a week. I think as the family started growing, I just I wanted to make different choices. And understandably, there wasn't a place for it in medicine. I I wanted to go down to three days a week I tried the compressed schedule thing where I was working 10 hours a day four days a week and I started burning out you know it it just wasn't sustainable although on paper it seems like it's better I think it was just you know your life situations change Mm -hmm. where you are now maybe in a different place five years from now having that flexibility is super important Mm -hmm. not being able to tailor your lifestyle based on your needs at any specific moment that can be very frustrating and I think that's where having financial freedom and decoupling your income from your job it's I've spoken to many physicians who've cut back intentionally a because you know because they've gone through the program. They've now have a portfolio and they can do it. They have passive income, but also just because they had to, it's always hard to transition um, and to cut back in medicine. But I think having the choice becomes so important. So I would have loved to practice maybe two days a week in medicine at most, if that was an option. It wasn't really an option for me to go to two. So I went down to a day a week in medicine, but I think it's always about yeah, it's it's always a transition, and having the flexibility to do things at any given time, I think that's important. That's what financial freedom gives you.
0: So you're down to one day a week, and you're also financially independent now. And I mean that that nice thing about that is you get all kinds of flexibility, and, and you know you could go all sorts of different directions. And you know as long as you're willing to use your money as the tool, which you're doing a good job of, and that that's really good to see. I'm curious about the scaling back part in medicine, and I'm wondering if you felt any like guilt or shame and or pressure from other people about like scaling back did any of that happen or was it pretty seamless transition for you
1: i think the identity part is hard for all of us and it sometimes seems like it's the people around us but oftentimes that's just the part within us the guilt within us that is uh, is hard to deal with I- i've learned to realize that every time i i feel something because someone said something it's because i have that doubt within myself it's hard but i think what i've come to realize is that i will always be a physician at heart that medicine you always take it with you I always constantly get consults I'm constantly assisting and helping people and giving advice as a physician I mean I haven't cut back completely and I think a big part of that is because it's hard to let go of that identity but I do um, know other people in the space who have grown their portfolios where they're cutting back only because oftentimes it's because you know they want to work a few days a month and that's not always an option by the way organizations work it may not always be the right fit and so you're so it's 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 a choice between working full-time time and then on not being in medicine. And many people choose to not be in medicine at that stage in life. But I think it's always a hard transition. But oftentimes, it's us being hard on ourselves more than anything else.
0: Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Ren Financial Planning. Have you been struggling with pulling the trigger on your first investment property? Maybe you're paralyzed by the fear of taking a new risk? Or maybe you're unsure how it all fits into your overall financial picture. Or maybe you're not even sure if you're ready or even cut out for it. That's where we can help. As a financial planner, of course, we can help you to be efficient with your finances. But it's more than this. Think of us like a coach or even a guide helping you on your financial journey. Your journey of using money as a tool, not just to get rich, but to improve life. We can help you to approach big decisions like investing in real estate with a clear head, avoiding going off the rails. Maybe on one side, there's this temptation to get rich quick that a lot of us feel, and maybe on the other side, there's this tendency for fear to tend to take the driver's seat. Ultimately, we serve as your advocate to help you stay on the road to making solid decisions that align more with your values and help you improve your life. You can schedule a no-cost triage meeting with one of our financial planners to discuss more about what this might look like for you by clicking the link in the show notes to schedule a consult now. And make sure to mention that you found us from the Finance for Physicians podcast. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, I'm a big fan of real estate. And obviously you're a good example of how real estate can work out really well. I mean, you can look at a lot of like the wealthy people in the world and most of them have been investors in real estate. And so I think it's pretty safe to say, like generally speaking, real estate's a great place to invest in. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. And maybe we can get into some of those options here in a second, but I'm curious about like the balance of things. So like real estate's great. And I think that's a pretty safe statement generally speaking. Healthcare is a little bit of a, I said it's a train wreck. I mean, it's not, there's some problems in healthcare. And I think that there's a lot of burnout and stress and a lot of physicians are looking for alternatives. And so I see a lot of physicians naturally, for good reason, turning to real estate as a solid solution to kind of give them some freedom from the stressors that come with practicing medicine. And I like that. I mean, that's partly why we were talking before we started recording. That's partly why we're talking and we've started kind of getting into real estate is because it can be a great solution to help make this shift. But one of the concerns I have, this is probably more as like a patient side of things, or maybe just more of like a big picture for the country sort of thing. Like I see a ton of physicians getting out of medicine earlier than maybe they had expected to do things like real estate or side gigs or, you know, just retiring early. And as a patient, I'm like, Oh, no, I am concerned about my future or my kids future of like being able to get quality healthcare. But being where you've gone in your life, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this this idea.
1: So I think it's always a a demand supply question, right, Daniel? So I feel like if we get to the point where there is actually a shortage, then the terms, the ability to negotiate, the number of hours you work and the number of patients you see, all of that's probably going to transition also. I think the equilibrium will always be there where physicians will have the option to practice medicine in in a safe way and also provide care. So if we ever get to the point where more people are doing that, then, you know, and we we actually have a, a mismatch and demand supply. I have a feeling we'll reach an equilibrium where physicians will be able to negotiate better terms. So uh, I don't see that as the direction. I mean, Even within our community, I cut down to a day a week and that's because my kids were three and five when I got a financial freedom. And I just wanted, like the last two years has been, I've spent so much time with them. I'll never get that back. They start school in August. So I was at a different stage in my life. I know multiple physicians within our program who have cut back and all they want to do is go down to three days. A week, right? Three days a week will just be that's the balance that they need, and so that I think that's a healthy balance for someone who's worked in medicine for twenty years who wants to go down to three days a week. I think that that's a very healthy balance for people. There are people who love medicine, love the way they're practicing it, and they just want the passive income, so there's no pressure, so they're able to go in and negotiate better terms for themselves. And so I think there are people on different ends of the spectrum, and again, I feel like if we ever get to the point where there is an acute shortage, then we'll be able to negotiate better terms. So I think that that equilibrium will be. Set. We're just not, like you said, we're just not at that point right now. Where I know primary care physicians who have a 15 minutes slot to see a patient before they have the next patient after 15 minutes, they're not doing justice to pay, to patients the way that is. And they're, I can see it. They're burnt out every day. That needs to shift. And this is just giving the healthcare providers more control so that they can negotiate better terms for themselves. Is how I see this going. My mm. case is different because. For me, I was at the point where, you know, that was just a change I needed to make per se state in that stage of my life. right? But people who have older kids and people who, uh, everyone has different needs. And I think this just gives people options, right? Where we aren't mm-hmm. handcuffed, right? So it's not the golden handcuffs. Right. Thing, really,
0: essentially. right. And that's the worst, because if you're like, I think of like the early career, like let's say you're just going out of getting out of training and you're starting your practice and you go to a hospital. And you're like, you go to meet with them first time. They introduce you to the realtor. They show you in the nice neighborhood. You buy the $2 million house. And then you sign the five-year contract that's locked in with non-competes and the big yeah. bonus that you got to pay back if you leave early and you get the private schools and, and then, oh, there's tail cap- coverage you got to pay for if you leave. And yeah. like, and then the RVU thing kicks in after a couple of years and you realize, oh no, I got to actually like work harder than I had initially realized on the front end because I had the guarantee and it's gone away and all those things kind of like build and they're not in your favor and they lock you down hard aka the golden handcuffs and like you mentioned and those are that's the opposite of freedom and that's not a good spot to be in but the more physicians are able to negotiate or get better terms like on those sorts of things that's or even just have financial freedom like when you have financial freedom you could be like no no, I'm not. Exactly.
1: You can put your foot down and say that this is what is best, in my opinion, is best for the And This is what I'm willing to do. And it gives you the ability to do that because you know a lot of physicians are frustrated by their jobs, but they're doing it not because they want to go in every day. It's because they have to. And it's just about shifting that from where they get to go in and they want to go in and they're not mm. doing it because they have to
0: right so you're doing you started out doing turnkey like kind of hiring a manager direct ownership right so you bought a property we've had some people on to talk about turnkey investing you know it's kind of like pretty passive like you do you still have to select the company to Mm. like manage the whole deal for you but it's it's pretty much you know not a whole lot of work right you just select the property and they kind of do the whole deal and it's pretty but you know there is a cost that comes with that right
1: Yeah, that's the education part. So like, even within the, you know, like I said, I I like to classify them as three different categories, right? So the, the, the investor is the person we're talking about, who's like, you know, wants to be very, very passive, doesn't want too much time in it. And they can choose to invest passively in apartment syndications where they just have to vet the sponsor, find someone they like working with and work with them, or they can buy their own turnkey rentals, right? Both of those are passive. I would say there's a little bit of trade-off over there when you're Direct with direct ownership, you have slightly higher returns, but you need to be somewhat educated, right? You have to pick the right market, you have to pick the right team, you kind of mm. have to run your numbers, and you know we we have tons of free calculators, and there are uh, other people who have those free calculators, but there's a little bit of education that goes into it. So you don't want to just jump in and buy something, and then and then find out, oh, well, I can't evict someone because it's you know I'm in a tenant friendly state, or the numbers don't make sense, and I'm pouring money into this a thousand grand goes in that that's not the situation you want to be in. So there's a little bit of upfront education. Yeah. But if you get that right, then you could get to the point where, like I said, it's like 15 minutes a month is what you're spending on your portfolio because it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you're not going in doing rehabs. It's like turnkey, simple, someone else is managing it. So you can build those systems. And that's where I think the whole point of me starting to talk about it was for people to see that. Even direct ownership can be super passive, right? That's that's an option. And then you have the ability like, to be like a hustler. like That's what I did. I started off super passive. Then I moved into, hey, I'm going to do rehabs and increase the value of these properties, increase the rents, uh, take all of that money, do a refinance and then buy something else. I'm going to do all of that, but I'm only doing it for a year or two. And then I get to, it's very fluid. I get to go back to that passive state and just let it ride out and have property managers manage mm. it. And I think it's important for people to see that A, you have options and you always have the ability. And you know, the reason I went into that mode was because I wanted the tax savings, right? I wanted to, you know, really accelerate my growth by getting those tax savings and sheltering my clinical income from taxes. So that I could use that to grow the portfolio faster and get to financial freedom faster. But then right after I hit that point. I don't do rehabs anymore in my personal portfolio. We do that with the apartment syndications. That's a different thing. With my personal portfolio right now, I like to just buy turnkey, went back to the same strategy. Turnkey, class A properties, nice tenants, properties that make sense in landlord-friendly states, right? So you get to pivot at any point and you can keep it super passive, I think are the takeaways over there. Mm -hmm
0: yeah i think either way though you gotta get some baseline education and a lot of a lot of the resources you're providing they're solid for those sorts of like educating yourself on a baseline especially i mean if you're going to go the passive route like we're saying with turnkey for example or going into syndication or something you still have to have some level of education i've definitely encountered a lot of people that think that they don't need any education so that's that's a misconception. (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: dangerous. That's why I started talking about it because I see friends all the time making mistakes. And I'm Mm. like, we'll talk about it. And you only present options to people. And you'll be like, well, yes, the sponsor doesn't have a great, I mean, they don't have a track record. So I would really be careful about that. And Mm. then you see them after uh, six months, they've invested half a million dollars and they come in pulling their hair out saying, I need to get my money out because of partnership is fracturing so okay well that's the due diligence part right so you need to do that up front so even if you're a passive investor in direct ownership or syndications that that initial due diligence i think needs to be done to some extent and and it's hard for people to know what they should be looking at okay what do i look at in the market what do i look at you know in my team what do i look for in the property and so that's i think that's where we do a lot of free you know free education we have free mm. live events every year where all we talk about is okay this is the due diligence you need to do your free ebooks but it's like putting everything together in one place where Mm -hmm. they go in knowing something so they're making the right choices.
0: Right, yeah. And if if you're listening, if you work with us already like one-on-one, we can kind of help with some of the like higher level, especially at a minimum, like having a second set of eyes on things. At a minimum, I think that's one of the biggest things is if you can just be running your ideas through some other lens or doing some checks on them to kind of get some additional input. That's a huge deal and it'll save you lots of headaches and gets you kind of to that baseline. But then from there, you got into a little bit more active investing where that starts to take more time, but you typically see a lot better returns, or you should see a lot better returns when you get your hands dirty and get more involved. The trade-off is you got to spend a lot more time, but it's a much faster way to grow your portfolio, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, Daniel. You know, when you're when you're growing up and you hear about money, people just say, okay, you want to get to financial freedom sooner? Work harder and earn more and spend less, and all of those things. And all those things are important, but there's only so much more you can work, right? Especially when yeah. you have two kids, you realize, okay, wait, I don't know if this is going to work anymore. But the thing that people don't talk about is like, what is the return the roi of your overall portfolio like no one talks about that when they talk about financial freedom because all you hear is the you know the four percent safe withdrawal so the 25x your annual requirement that's where your portfolio needs to be all of that is built for the stock market because, and that's mm-hmm. based on that four percent safe withdrawal you can only withdraw four percent from that stock portfolio in retirement the funny thing is that I mean, we actually have a retirement calculator on the website and there are so many other retirement calculators where you can actually plug in the numbers and if you go from that four percent when I plug my numbers in it would take me me 17 years to get to financial freedom, investing in the stock market. But with real estate, the passive real estate that we talked about, right, those passive strategies, you get 20% annualized returns every year. Right, that's with a lower risk profile, and I mean we can get to into that if we need to. But when you get active, right? When you said when you spend more time on real estate and you um, you get active and you start tapping into those advanced tax strategies, we can get up to two hundred percent ROI in your one. And so that's the it's a game of returns essentially. When you plug those numbers in, and so even if you're conservative and say you get to a point where you're getting seventy percent ROI because you're doing the short term rental, you're getting the tax savings, you can get to financial freedom in two to three years as opposed to seventeen years. So I like to look at it as a game of returns. All right? And there's a spectrum, it's mm. time versus returns, and it's also risk versus returns. And I pick where you want to be, but real estate is definitely significantly higher. So you can go all the way up to 70% ROI over your portfolio once you're factoring in cash flow or tax savings and equity increase over time. And that's what I kind of want people to understand. So when you change those numbers based on the ROI of your portfolio increasing, once you add real estate in there, that's when you're really accelerating the financial freedom. And so there's even an ebook on, on, our, on our page. The, it's a free ebook you can download where I talk about, you know, the first property it took me six years to get to the point where I pulled all my cash out. The second property, I pulled all my money out of that deal in six months. And that's the game of returns, right? So when you're able to do that, that's what's really accelerating you, Mm -hmm. which is why I think it's from leveraging, from from, um, equity increase, from the tax savings, um, Mm -hmm. from forcing appreciation, all of those things, you can actually bump those returns up significantly, but that requires more education. And then it does require more time on your part.
0: Yeah. So basically, I mean, at a minimum, you get. I think you got to understand, especially if you, the more active you're going to be in it. You got to understand all these concepts, like for sure, like at least.
1: Otherwise, you're learning from your own mistakes, right? Like you said, yeah, Daniel, You don't want to do that when you have someone reviewing that and giving you a different perspective, then you're learning for, from them as opposed to learning from costly mistakes that you're making yourself.
0: Right. And they can be huge, massive, especially when you talk about leverage. Like when you talk about leverage, there's the downside risk is a lot bigger. And you know, you don't want to make a mistake with being over leveraged. In, in, especially in sort of with commercial
1: loans, I oh, think commercial yeah. loans, a whole different beast where leverage is like, be very intentional about how much leverage you have on those properties. Mm-hmm. With conventional loans, they're more forgiving, but you still don't want to have if you're trying to get to financial freedom, I see people all, all the time getting something with a 15 an investment property with a 15-year loan in a in a high cost of living market like the Bay Area or LA, and they're pouring five grand into that property every month. Now that's a different kind of handcuff where you're handcuffed mm. to your job because you need to keep feeding the property in the hope that 15 years later you get to a point where it's giving you returns. But yeah, so really being intentional about what you're doing, I think is key, understanding what your overall goals are and then picking from that spectrum. So I'm just like mm. trying to show that there's a whole spectrum in terms of effort, risk, and reward and you get yep. to pick and you get to pivot at any point. And that's very fluid. But that's where kind of educating yourself and and having a mentor or having someone who can guide you becomes really helpful.
0: Right. I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to make money in real estate, but you got to start to understand all those options for, for starters to even know which direction you might want to go. And then you got to start to learn from someone and then experience it yourself. That's where you really, once yes. you kind of mix all those together and you start experiencing it, there's a lot of people I know, and come across that own like one property. There's a whole bunch of people that own like one property. And part of that was because so many people got their first property in like 2008 or nine. That's when real estate tanked. In fact, I was a real estate investor after 2008 because my age group and older, we were buying like our first house in like 2007 and the real estate market tanked. And so you got a ton of people, like say you bought a house in Florida, real estate cut in half, and then you're like, ah, I can't get rid of this thing. It's lost half its value. And so they became overnight, you know, real estate investors and they have one property. That's not the ideal way to get into real estate. It's, there's no intention behind that. It's kind of just like a solution to the problem that you're in. And typically those types, including myself, didn't have like a ton of like knowledge yet around how to do it. But I've noticed there's a, even still today, there's a whole bunch of people that just have like either have owned one or maybe two at the most properties and they have a hard time getting over that hump. But I think a lot of it has to do with just not getting these baseline things that we're talking about covered, like exactly doing the numbers, the basics or not educating themselves, not having a team of people around them.
1: I think that's the most important thing, Daniel. I like to call them accidental landlords because uh, either it's because they purchased a home and moved out of it and they started renting one or they are someone who saw home prices appreciating so quickly between 04 and 05 and then they did it for appreciation, but they purchased properties that weren't cash flowing day one. And so a big part of what you want to do is find something that's cash flowing day one because here's the thing, property prices tanked after 08, 09, but let's look at what happened to rents nationally, right? Historic numbers for rents in that period, 08, rents dropped by 4% nationally oh nine they drop by another five percent and then they start shooting back up so if you had a cash flowing property where you had that 10 percent buffer built in that's why we stress test properties that's why we use calculators that's why we have those resources available for free but if you've done that and you've stress tested your properties and you have that 10 percent buffer you would not have had to feed that property Mm. from day one it would have just sat there rents went up and then here's the interesting thing about inflation hedge right your rents are going up but your mortgage payment is fixed at that level whatever you got it at and so over time your cash flow is in increasing so if you got something at 08 before the crash and that property was cash flowing and you were able to hold it with a 30-year mortgage you would be doing phenomenally well today right and then the problem is people didn't have cash flowing assets because they were banking on appreciation and that's a mistake you don't want to make i know a physician who bought 64 units these apartment buildings in 07 and 08 but he got the right kind of debt on them now again commercial loans that's that's a whole nother beast but he had yeah. the right kind he had seller financing so he could just hold it right and he did phenomenally well even be, be, even though prices tank tanked because he had the right debt on it. But you don't have to worry on it if you have conventional mortgages with a single family home. Mm-hmm. And he had a property that was cash flowing, right? right? So that's the only thing. And then you have inflation help you and then time help you.
0: And long-term, like, you know, a lot of these direct ownership, like long-term rentals, for instance, that's, you should ideally view it as a long-term thing. So like you should be prepared for the market to tank unexpectedly. Yes. You never know. And that should be like kind of a, just a thing that happens that's just a blip on the radar but like it doesn't matter that much 20 years from now you're still gonna do the thing and it's just gonna and if you're doing it for cash flow reasons too like you said like that typically doesn't have as massive of an effect or it shouldn't it should already have been built into the equation that it should be exactly. a non-issue
1: exactly yeah and I think um, historically home prices go up by three to four percent and that's just inflation matched mm. and if you look at if you factor that that drop in and you still see where we are we're we're always at we're actually home Prices are increasing above that inflation baseline, right? And yeah, so, lately. yeah, as long as you have a long term strategy, as long as you're buying in the right markets, and so every real estate is very hyper local, every market performs well. This is where market due diligence comes into play, right? If you're buying something in a landlord friendly state where there's tons of population growth, uh, industry diversification, where uh, people are migrating in their incomes are going up, then you're safe, right? Because then you have the ability market. to exit that deal.
0: Right, right, right. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff with real estate we can get into. I wanted to touch on a couple of different things. I know we're running out of time and there's about Actually, more like 15 things I was hoping to get into. But there's two things I th- hopefully we have time to get into that I was I was hoping to ask you about. The first thing was kind of thinking about the current situation with real estate in the future. It's a little bit of a unique market in some regards, like interest rates have gone up a fair amount. And then prices have gone up as well, especially some of these in some of these desirable areas. And so it's made some of these calculators, like if I'm running the typical Calculator on a rental property. Yeah, it's become a lot harder to make my calculator work late yes. lately. Especially, I feel like as as an investor get to wanting to get into it, it's become almost like a hurdle for me. If I was already a little gun shy, and I'm like, oh, yeah. So I'm curious to your thoughts on that. And then the second thing I wanted to make sure and hit on is how do people find you? I wanted to talk about your community and kind of make sure we get this in there as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let me get into the first thing. So everything you talked about is 100% correct, Daniel. We're in a very different environment than we were in two years ago. Interest rates are super high prices. So transaction volume is super low because people have locked in interest rates at like 2-3%, they're not getting out of it. And that is causing that, what that's doing is that it's keeping prices elevated and not letting them drop, right? So between the high interest rate and the high prices, if you're looking for a turnkey rental, that's going to cash flow, you know, you're lucky if you find something that breaks even in a in really good markets. And so our strategy has to shift in these times. And so in our, within our program, we're constantly coaching, people are constantly acquiring what we're doing is I, I look at it as three different things, right? I, I would say which what, what we're buying is different. We are trying to buy properties at some discount if possible, right? A little bit of discount. So in most markets, prices have reset between 10 to 15% uh, between the peak uh, that we saw last year. And so, so there is, a little bit of discount over there. You want to buy for the long term. This is what we just talked about. And you want to buy something that is cash flowing. That's the most important thing. So being really intentional and then picking the right market. If it's short-term rentals, regulations, you really want to be careful about what you're buying because it's not a time where you can buy anything and you're going to do well. Um, The next part is going to be, how do you ensure you can hold this property, you know, no one has a crystal ball and there's a there's a best case scenario, there's an expected reasonable case scenario and a worst case scenario. I think we should all plan for worst case scenario because the rest of the other two scenarios don't really matter, you're not planning for it, right? And so that can give you, make you feel better, but it's really useless. So in terms of, can you hold a property? This is where I say, use the to stress test all your deals with short-term rentals. We're dropping revenue. Um, we're dropping the average daily rates by 10%, but dropping occupancy by 10% and seeing if those numbers still make sense because you don't want to be feeding these properties with long-term rentals, drop your rents by 10% and see if you can, um, sustain it will that happen it may not happen we may have a soft landing that's um, more likely just with the way things are uh, but we are always planning for worst case scenario right mm-hmm. and the final part is what i like to talk to investors about so we don't have control over what market prices are going to do right that's something that's completely out of our control but that's just one factor of real estate investing so if you can find ways to increase your cash flow for some people that is doing midterm rentals in in with you know taking a single we have members in our community who take a single uh, family home for 400,000 that they could rent for 2,500 as a long-term rental. And they furnish it, and they rent it out for 7,500 to $10,000. Right as a midterm rental, and so they're tripling mm. their cash flow with that strategy, and it's not as time intensive as short term rentals. There are others who will buy a short term rental and get you know higher returns by doing that. So small it's midterm,
0: like six days to six. What is the definition?
1: One month, one to six months typically. So uh, okay. if it's less than a month, you know, it's still considered technically a short-term rental Yeah, by the irs there are different rules we don't if you want we can get into it if you need to but anyway anything more than a month is typically midterm rental and then you can go in and rehab something right find something which a first-time homebuyer like i got a property to a few years ago where it was i got it for dollars. 000 first-time homebuyer wouldn't touch it because the carpets needed to be changed the the appliances were all shot i went and i put in 15 grand that's it Completely redid the whole place, got countertops changed. So it was only 15 grand and the property value went up by $100,000. Right. So yeah. those are the strategies that you can do, Where you need to be a little creative, think outside the box, and then tapping into those tax savings. Right. That's something mm. doesn't matter what the market does in terms of pricing, as long as you are, it's based on what you acquired the property for. If you're tapping into that, that gives you a buffer. Right. So you have all these other additional things that you can do. But I think it's a time where If you're willing to buy long-term rentals and and have it break even and write it out and then refinance when rates go down, that's probably... The only way you can get turnkey rentals, you could try different markets. Some markets tend to cash flow better. So, hybrid markets tend to do better in terms of cash flow. The Midwest tends to do better in terms of cash flow. So, for someone for whom cash flow is really important, you may try different markets, but or you shift your strategy and then you tap into additional savings. So, that's what I usually like to say. Okay, mm-hmm. be, be intentional about those three key components. What are you buying? how can you can you hold this property you know and still really? have it sustain itself and then control the things that you can control because there's so many things you can as long as you have a longer term strategy prices will reset and like i said revenue doesn't really drop as much and so all you're doing with your stress testing is factoring in the 10% drop that typically happens during recessionary periods
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Cool. Well, where can people find you? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, we uh, have grown. We have a community of about 10,000 physicians. That's generational wealth MD. We're online. I love educating. I love speaking about this. We have a free Facebook group. And then we're on all the social media platforms. And on our website, we have tons of resources. The, the financial independence worksheet and retirement calculator I was talking about is in the resources section calculators for long-term and short-term rentals for anyone trying to purchase something now, just, you know, if you want to stress test, use those calculators, those are available. I have a free ebook where we talk, I talk about how I did it. So kind of like a, 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 you know, an overview of, how you can think about real estate and how to educate yourself, mm. how you can do due diligence. But we also host um, two free live events every year. It's a three-day live event. It's nine hours of coaching where I feel like every time I do a podcast, it's like piecemeal. This is like start to finish. Okay, yeah. this is what if, What are your goals? This is the kind of investor you are. So how do you pick your strategy? How do you pick your market? And then I want you to you know, educate yourself about these things in terms of building a team and taxes and accounting and all of those things. So we go over that in a more systematic fashion so people can really come up with a plan. And it's usually, so we have the next one coming up in September. It's generationalwealthmd.com slash event, all lowercase. And I think that's a great way for people to get into the community be supported on their journey, but also have like a, a systematic way of doing it, I,
0: I feel. Yeah, that's good stuff. We'll link to all those resources in the show notes in case you're interested. You can check those out. So yeah, I like where you're going with those things. And that's the key is you're getting some good education out there. And that's what we really need to be starting with, with this stuff. So Harum, I really appreciate you coming on. It's It's been a fun conversation. And I know there's a ton more we need to talk about. So maybe we'll have to circle back at some point. But thank you for coming on.
1: Absolutely. It's so much fun, Daniel. Thank you for what you do. I think this is so important, you know, talking about all things finances, all the questions that you pose, all the topics you talk about, uh, I I really love uh, listening to your podcast.
0: Thanks. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families. And most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.